0: Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. So back in 1999, looking to the future beyond the start of a new millennium, UBS formed the Optimus Foundation, which is the only client-driven foundation linked to a global wealth manager and fully staffed with philanthropy experts. With the right experience, knowledge, and network to help philanthropists make the most impact in their giving, the foundation has improved health, education, and child protection systems for over 10 million children worldwide. And now, as they celebrate its 20th anniversary, they're actually opening up their 7th location in Singapore. The existing level of private philanthropic capital currently is at $1.5 trillion, could rise to $5 trillion over the next decade by 2030. And today, we are very honored to have with us the CEO of this foundation, Phyllis Costanza, who, since she took on this role nearly nine years ago, has been instrumental in reshaping the foundation's strategy, introducing innovative financing vehicles, like the first development impact bond for education, which we'll get to a little later in the show. But first, as we always do in Financially Speaking, we want to learn more about our guest journey. So, let me welcome Phyllis to the podcast. Welcome. So, thank you so much for taking time to speaking with us today. So, let's start out hearing your story that eventually led you to this critical role tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the world of charitable giving.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Mitch. It was an interesting and unintended journey. I grew up in upstate New York, Rochester, New York, to a very politically and socially active family. So I always thought I would do something involved in government, Uh, And in fact, I did. I worked for the governor of New York back in the 80s. And uh, from there, I went on to get a master's in public policy because I thought I'll probably keep working in government. I loved the work. But as uh, it happens, I also had huge student loans to pay back. So I had to pay them back. And where does one go to pay back their loans? At the time, we went to consulting. So I did that. But friends of mine from graduate school soon after, asked me to sit on the board of their foundation they were starting. And they promised me I would only have to sign two documents a year, and it was going to be very small. And then they got me hooked. I was on their board. And then started, I quit my other consulting job and went to work for them full time and worked with them for 10 years. And that tiny charitable organization is now valued at more than 5 billion US dollars. And uh, is not tiny, and no, I never signed all. only
0: two documents. When you were at the uh, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, were you, did you think about politics yourself, running for office?
1: I did, but I have such wanderlust that I never thought I could dig down dig roots in deep enough to really be in a community to be able to run for office i've been married now 27 years and my husband and i have moved 19 times and that includes overseas and i just moved to new york actually from zurich where i lived for 10 years
0: well, well, welcome to back to the Big Apple, sort of, you know, back to New York at least. There's another Cuomo governor this time, the, the different one than the, he worked for. Yeah, so some yeah. things haven't changed that much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was listening to one of your speeches and, and heard you talk about the golden rule of giving and how it's a bumpy road paved with good intentions. Tell us more about what you meant specifically by that.
1: Well, when people give philanthropically, it comes from the best place. People aren't giving because they intend to do harm. Mm-hmm. Um, but at UBS, what we see a lot is we have our wealthy clients, and um, they have this idea about what is good. And we have heard, every single one of us, that a client comes back from a safari to Africa, they passed a poor village, and w- there were lots of children running around and it wouldn't be great if we built an orphanage in this community. Mm-hmm. And that then, um, we... As a result of that, we started looking into this orphanage phenomenon because the number of orphanages is growing substantially, not just across sub-Saharan Africa, but in Southeast Asia as well. And in fact, in places like Cambodia, it's grown a thousand times Hmm. bigger over the past five to 10 years. And 100% of this, at least in places like Cambodia and uh, Nepal, are funded by international philanthropists. And so once we did more research, uh, we learned that actually orphanages are the worst place for children. And children who live in orphanages as opposed to in a family environment end up being more likely to be sexually abused, being malnourished have lower education attainments, more likely to be um, addicted to drugs, more likely to be abused when they're older, everything. Um, So we're now trying to—and more than 80% of children in orphanages, by the way, are not orphans. So we're trying to get kids out of orphanages and um, find them families to live with. And most of them actually have their families, and for whatever reason, the parents gave them up, many times because they were duped into thinking they were doing the Right. right thing. right.
0: We had a guest on a few weeks ago, a gentleman named Flip Flippins. He's uh, written a number of books and, and teaches in Texas. He's actually a psychotherapist. And, and while he was in practice, he just kept seeing these kids with all of these problems. And he and his wife wound up raising 20 kids on their large acre in College Station, Texas. Um, and he talked a lot about how everybody everybody has their first story. And you have no control over your first story. Your first story, you don't get to write it's written for you. And in an interview that we're probably going to air a little bit before you, when I talked to one of our global visionaries, he was talking specifically about that too. It's like, you know, you have no control. You were brought up in, in, you know, in this horrible, horrible situations. And these people that have their first story, you know, they, they don't get a chance. It's, it's all about trying to write your second and your third story and everything along, along those ways. Um, where does the name Optimus come from, by the way? I was curious.
1: It actually, when the foundation was started in 1999, it was started by the then chairman of UBS. And there was a magazine that was distributed in Switzerland by UBS that was called Optimus, And I think it was on his desk and he saw it and said... You shall be optimists. And
0: here we are. You know, I, I heard a great story. This is absolutely nothing to do with this, but I just love this story. I've, I've to- just told it a few times. I was watching the Ken Burns special on uh, country music, and he was talking about Chris Christopherson and kind of how he got his start. He was sweeping at uh, Columbia Records in Nashville, and 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 the president happened to walk by, and, and he said, you know, I actually write music. And, and he gave him some music, and he listened to it, and he brought him into his office, and he says, all right, kid, I'm going to give you a chance. Go write me a hit song. Just write me a hit song. And he said, when you're done, I want you to bring it to my assistant, Mrs. McGee, out there. And he said, okay, sure. And he went out and met Mrs. McGee. What's your first name? Bobby. Oh, okay. When Bobby McGee was was written. So, you know, you just, just, (laughs) I know it's sort of nothing to do with fundraising and philanthropy, but. Nothing and everything, you know. But everything, yeah. I mean, that's just incredible how things happen. So. I want to spend a a good deal of our time talking about social finance. And why don't I let you define that specifically and its relationship to the critical importance we all care about so much in the world of sustainable investing. In fact, I see you're wearing a together band, and we'll talk about that too. I know you have some fascinating survey information about millennials and and women specifically, though.
1: On the data, we know that 66% of millennials see social investing as a key way to express their values. And 88% of women want to have an impact through their investing. And many of these people, about a third of people in Switzerland, are actually even willing to take a lower return. Mm -hmm. So we, at UBS, we define the world in two places. We have philanthropy on one side, and we have sustainable investing on the other side. And... We tell our clients, and this is true, that when they make decisions about sustainable investing, they don't have to take a haircut on their invest on their returns.
0: <laughs> Quite the opposite, actually. Yeah,
1: exactly. Once that you do the
0: research. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so so we've got exclusion, which means taking out bad companies from your portfolio. We have inclusion, making sure that we're including environmental, social, and governance, governance considerations. Right. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have impact investing, right. which is driving impact directly with financial returns. Then on the philanthropy side, we have philanthropy. And we have something called social finance that's kind of bridging the gap between philanthropy and sustainable investing. This is where we invest with an impact-first lens. So our financial returns are directly tied to the social impact. And I'll give you an example. One thing that we did was called a social success note. And basically, these are all outcomes, so performance-based contracts. We gave a loan to an organization in Uganda called Impact Water, and they provide clean water systems to low-cost private schools. Now, the problem with clean water systems is that 50% of the wells that are put into Africa aren't working, and people don't know how to use clean water. Even if they have it, they don't know that using Soap and clean water wash your hands is probably one of the best health interventions you can make. Um, And also to drink that water instead of the brown water that they typically drink. So we incentivized this for-profit company. We said, we're going to give you a loan. It was a concessional rate. It was still 5%. However, if attendance rates in the school go up, and that means that kids are healthier, so they miss school less, therefore... The attendance rates go up. If the attendance rates go up, the interest on that loan, instead of being 5%, can drop as low as 1.9%. And our client investors could make as much as 9%. So where does that difference come from? That comes from Rockefeller Foundation, who is the outcome funder in this case. So they're willing to throw in extra money to really drive impact real impact about improving the health care outcomes for children
0: well that's that's substantial and so development investment bonds is this would this be an example of what a development investment bond is or is that something that's uniquely different i know we did one in education that surpassed enrollment and learning targets which is as a former two-term board of education member myself I, i know how critical that is so you know i'd like to hear a little bit about that as well
1: great so um a development impact bond followed on to the social impact bond movement, which started in the UK, as many people probably know, and I'm just going to simplify it dramatically. In the UK, it costs the government about £50,000 per year to keep a prisoner in jail. And as we know, the way government budgets work, we don't always have the money for prevention, only in this case for incarceration. But a non could reduce recidivism, which was 70% at the time, substantially for only 25,000 pounds per formerly incarcerated person. So a group of investors came together and said, hey, nonprofits, we're going to give you the 25,000 pounds you need to do your great work, and UK government, you pay us back 30,000 pounds if it works, and we'll have an independent evaluator assess that. So every prisoner that was prevented from going back to prison who would have otherwise gone back, the UK government pays back the investor, 30,000 pounds on their 25,000 pound investment. So they make 5,000 pounds. And the government would have paid 50,000 pounds. And now they're only paying 30,000 pounds. So they're saving 20,000 pounds. So it's a beautifully elegant solution. And we, um, we took that to the developing world because we see the same problem as we see in government. A startling statistic is that in the U.S., we spend from local government, state government, federal government, about $800 billion every year on human service programs. But wait for it, the, the key punchline here is that we have knowledge of impact of less than 1% of that. And I remember I went to government school 28 years ago. That's really upsetting. And we were talking about <laughs> evidence-based policy making, And I remember thinking... At that time, how else would policy be made other than by evidence? Um, But still, we're struggling with that now. And then in the development sector, large aid organizations like USAID, which is the U.S. government's aid agency, Department for International Development in the U.K., all of those together across the world, they put in about $145 billion a year to developing countries for assistance. Similarly... Only 1.7% of that annually, and this is a stat I just read from the World Bank, um, is based on performance. Mm -hmm. And so, we wanted to bring this concept to the developing world. So, what we did was we gave an organization called Educate Girls a loan, basically, and it was small. It was $270,000. And we said, okay, Educate Girls, you have two goals. One, get... It was something like 7,000 girls into school. And number two, improve the learning outcomes by 75% better than a control group. And then we went to a hedge fund in London, also linked to a foundation. And we said, hey, it takes you a long time to do due diligence. You only want to fund things that work and you want to give away your philanthropic capital. So why don't we take the risk? We'll give them the money and you pay us back with a return if and only if it works. So you take no risk, exactly. but you pay a premium. right? And they said, great, that sounds terrific. So we ran that experiment for three years. The results were outstanding. They achieved way over their girls' enrollment target and way over their learning outcomes target. And so we made a 15% IRR on that, which is Pretty good. Yeah, that's
0: just in any environment. St- it's staggering. It sounds like there's a Nobel Prize in economics coming at some point <laughs> for this whole concept. This is really this is brilliant. It wouldn't
1: go to me. We just adopted the idea no, um, from it, brilliant people. No,
0: uh, it really is. It is brilliant. And but but one of the things that's I mean, it's so upsetting. You know, the the, the numbers you just gave. This one percent. What do you think? You know, I'm trying to keeping politics, which is insane, of course, uh, uh, aside. But what what's the role of a f- of philanthropy in a, in a modern democracy like ours? I mean, you know, we, if, if we're only getting that 1% return.
1: Uh, well, we only have knowledge of 1%. Right. Yeah. That's true. Um, but that's not enough. Yeah. You know, in so government, <laughs> in government, it's not enough. But yeah. it, frankly, and, and it's not enough in overseas development assistance, philanthropy, that's okay. We don't need to know if we're, we are risk capital. So what is our role in a modern democracy? It's to help spark innovation by government because governments are typically risk averse. Mm -hmm. So if we can test something out using philanthropic capital and prove to the governments or to the market that something works, we've done our job as philanthropists. So if you look at things like Polio, seatbelts, measles—all of these were initially funded by philanthropists, and they were successfully rolled out because of government policy. Government policy mandated all of this, and there you have it: market is created, and eradication of these diseases was experienced until recently with measles.
0: Well, the good news is, I think we have a generation growing up—the millennial generation—that really cares about this, and that's that. I think is a is something you know really really important. The Optimist Foundation clearly is looking to help social outcomes to benefit the role of vulnerable children, like you talked about. What would you say is the best way to be strategic in those efforts? And, and you can give some examples you know, f- for people that are you know, trying to help these vulnerable children.
1: Well, first of all, we always advise our clients to go where their heart leads them. You know, If they're, they're attached to an issue, they should focus on that. But with us, The areas that we're focused on are focused in places where there's very little funding going. So one example I'll give you is pediatric oncology in developing countries, which might sound obscure, but if you look at the data, yeah, if you look at the data, I mean, we see here in the US, cancer rates are on the rise and they're on the rise substantially in developing countries, yet if you look at children, Death rates related to cancer in developed countries has gone down substantially over the past 10 years, whereas they've gone up substantially in developing countries. So we've got this huge morbidity cancer divide, particularly amongst
0: children. Is it access to better health care? Is that yeah, generally you know, that's basically
1: yeah, it? So yeah. how do you how do you diagnose kids and then it's access and then yeah, treatment? What are the treatments we need? So UB, UBS actually launched this fund several years ago focused on oncology, and we are the beneficiaries of proceeds of that. And we had agreed that we we're gonna use that money for pediatric cancer in developing countries. So we're funding a, um, a center of excellence in Ghana now, which will serve as the center of excellence for pediatric oncology in West Africa, where there's very little focus.
0: Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, it really is. You know, it's it's always this is kind of related, but it's always a challenge for most people to to sift through all the needs of our planet and children and healthcare to figure out where is the best place to share their wealth. And you know, as a financial advisor, certainly this is something I've been dealing with with for over thirty years in, in working with with my clients. But how do you advise families, for example, on ways to make smart decisions on where they can make a difference? Also. I think equally as important are trusting the organizations are doing what they're supposed to be doing.
1: Yes. Great question. And one that's debated often. So I talked a little bit about this previously, but but we really advise families to do, to do something that is meaningful to them. Now that sound might sound really broad, but typically families will focus in areas and we encourage them to that they may have personally experienced. For instance, it might be cancer Um, It might be other diseases that family members have suffered from, or it might be that they have an affinity towards a particular region. Maybe somebody in their family is from Vietnam and they want to focus there. So we really try to extract from them what's important to them, what's important to their kids, and what's going to help bring the family together if that's their goal. And we really do believe that that Wealthy individuals can be more than just a name on a building. We right. really try to encourage our clients to do something that's going to make a really meaningful change in um, the lives of some of the most vulnerable.
0: Gates Foundation certainly a, a good example of of, of doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, like you talked about. Something that happens in their lives that makes an impact, and and last week on the show, I had the honor, really great honor, of sitting with one of our UBS global visionaries, uh, Andrew, uh, who started Peak Vision, and he was telling me, really, the origins of, of how he got involved, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a moment. But he, you know, he was he was seven eight years old, and he was basically told he was a lazy child and his parents were told, uh, this kid's never going to amount to anything. And, and he was, it wasn't that he was in, in poverty. He was in a decent neighborhood in, in the UK. And, you know, his parents said, well, did you ever do a vision test? You know, and they said, Oh no, we don't do vision tests. And they brought him and found out he had, I think his told me the prescription. It was like, or something. It was really, really serious. And he put on glasses and for the first time he could see the stars and, and he could see the leaves on a tree and, and, and it just it obviously made such an impact on him. And he, he didn't know at the time that half the planet is basically blind and nothing was being done about it until he started developing this new technology after spending time in Kenya. And, and he got a lot of generous global financial support. And I know the Optimist Foundation does work with folks like Peak Vision. How, do, how does that all work?
1: Well, actually, Andrew was selected to be a global visionary by UBS. And these are people that UBS identifies as being really entrepreneurial and having great ideas that have market-based potential, the majority of them. And we put them in front of our clients at events and things so that our clients can hear their inspirational story like Andrew. And so we met him through that program. And we try to support our global visionaries wherever possible. And so we had already done research in China on this very topic and saw the dramatic improvement that simply providing glasses to students has on learning outcomes And this was already something that we were interested in. And so we now support Andrew. And in fact, I saw him recently in New York, and um, we're hoping to get him even more support from companies like Warby Parker.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. What a perfect next year is 2020, the year of... Good vision, as Andrew said to me. So, two last things I wanted to get to before we wrap up. And and first, I understand you also serve on some fascinating nonprofit boards, and you mentioned that's kind of how you started getting into this. Um, Are are these the boards you were working on, the power of nutrition? Was that something that you worked on for many years, or is that something that...
1: Actually, we Optimist Foundation was a founding partner oh, okay. of that, and that's why I was on the board. I've since transitioned that board to another UBS colleague who is now um, sitting there, and... What do they do? They provide nutritional uh, support to children in low-income countries, and... One of the key issues is that for, for children, especially children under the age of five, is that 50% of all deaths is related to undernutrition. It is a critical issue. And without nutrition, children at a young age, children's brains won't properly develop. So it's an issue that we as the foundation care passionately about because you really stifle a child's entire future if that child isn't provided with the right nutrition when they're young
0: is is power of nutrition based in the US or are they based no, in UK No, they're actually
1: UK. UK, yeah. Yeah, they're based in the UK and I also sit on Micronutrient Initiative. They're based in Canada.
0: Oh, <laughs> is that a similar type of group? Micronutrient? Uh, or no,
1: actually, they are not we were not a founding member. They they're a big um a darling of Canada mm-hmm. and we and, and I sit on that board outside my capacity as DBS sure. Optimist sure. Foundation. That's
0: fascinating. You know, I feel very fortunate personally to work at a firm that helps break down barriers that prevent children from reaching their potential. I mean, there there just couldn't be anything more important than that. Um, Oh, lastly, I mentioned Together Band. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? I, I mentioned it at a show. Oh well, maybe six or seven months ago when speaking with our sustainable investing people. But that, that's a wonderful program.
1: This is great. So you're this wearing is, your green uh, one. Today. I'm wearing my green one, which is representing the sustainable development goal of health. And as you know, Mitch, there are 17 goals that the UN and others have identified that are the goals to bring 700 million people out of poverty and everything that's associated with that to improve our environment and create a better a better planet. And UBS is partnering with Bottletop to create these bands that are sustainably manufactured and sourced. And the, the proceeds of these bands, We'll go towards programs that Bottletop is supporting, but also that Optimist is supporting, directly targeting these sustainable development goals. So we encourage everybody to go out and buy their band and actually comes in a package of two so you can share one and if this is aired before the holidays it is a great holiday gift.
0: And even if not it's a great Valentine's Day gift. There it's, you go. It's, you Birthday. know, it's, it's birthdays. It's great for everything and we certainly will link to Together Bands. Uh, I, have, I have a few at home and I've gotten some for my, my kids as well and, and clients as well. It's really terrific. Phyllis, thank you so much for taking time today and I, I really wish you great success with all future social finance with the Optimus Fund and, and being based now in New York. Um, I'm sure that's going to be very exciting as well. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. Oh, certainly. And thanks for listening. And remember, when saving for all the important aspects of your life, which hopefully includes some form of charitable giving, pay yourself first. Have a great week.